This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. Hi, I'm Jeff Gibbard, the world's most handsome social media and content marketing strategist and real-life superhero. And this is my podcast, Shareable. Every week, I get the opportunity to speak with someone brilliant, including entrepreneurs, academics, authors, speakers, researchers, and more. Come along with me as we dig deeply into their unique story of success, including their highest of highs and often their lowest of lows. These episodes are powered by my curiosity about the critical role that relationships and technology play in shaping the course of our lives. These episodes aren't sales pitches. These episodes aren't the standard book tour. These episodes are just shareable. Before we get to the episode, I just wanted to let you know about an amazing free resource that you should be taking advantage of. I ran my own agency for seven years, and I know that as a freelancer, entrepreneur, or small business, you want to feel confident that you have all of the skills you need to grow your business, lead your team, and close the sale. But I also know that sometimes, no matter how hard you try, it seems like you can't get ahead. You try to learn how to be a better leader only to find yourself winging it. You know that you have a unique story to tell, but your marketing materials aren't telling it. And the things you need to learn are spread out all over the place, so it can be challenging to know where to even start. And it's for all of these reasons that I created the Superhero Institute. The Superhero Institute is a personal and professional development platform with curated resources, lessons, and strategies to unlock unlimited growth potential and teach you specific superhuman abilities. Your free membership comes with access to the one-of-a-kind superhuman framework, along with a structured approach designed to give freelancers and small businesses the tools for professional growth. Lead your team, tell your story, and close that business. Commit yourself to continual growing, to consistently expanding your skills, and constantly deepening your understanding. It's time that you get more done than you ever have before, and before long, you'll realize that you're just getting started. Become the superhero you were meant to be. Join today for free at SuperheroInstitute.org. The first podcast that I really ever got into was back in somewhere around 2011, 2012, 2013 area. It was, it was a, a podcast called Six Pixels of Separation uh, by Mitch Joel. And um, I really just appreciated the way that Mitch would interview his guests. The, the quality and caliber of guests he got was incredible. Uh, the conversations he had were intellectual, but not, you know, over your head to the degree where you couldn't really get into it. And, and they certainly weren't too beginner. They just really nicely threaded that relatable, but interesting and, and thought provoking. Uh, the way he challenged his guests was something I always admired. So when I decided to get into podcasting, really a lot of my interview style was modeled after and inspired by Mitch Joel and the way he ran Six Pixels. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, I discovered Mitch back in, you know, at the really at the beginning of my social media strategy days. And um, I've had a conversation that that if you're a longtime shareable listener, you'll have heard uh, with John Steyer. Where the conversation is called Who Got to You First? And in those really early days of social media, and really this is true in I think virtually any industry, there's going to be like different competing factions of ways of seeing the world and seeing your industry, right? And at the time that I got into social media, there was sort of the um, the, the Gary Vaynerchuk sort of school. Uh, there was a Chris Brogan school, I would say, that kind of neatly kind of overlapped in with um, the the kind of 
crew that I followed, which um, Chris Brogan was one of them, but the other would be uh, Mitch Joel, Mark Schaefer, and Seth Godin. And that was kind of my early inspiration as I got into the world of social media. So today's episode is really a big get for me uh, because despite the fact that Mitch and I run in a lot of the same circles, we have a lot of um, you know mutual connections, I never asked him to be on the show, and, and I don't know why, but because he would have said yes, and he's a really nice and super affable and friendly guy. So if I had asked him to be on the show, I'm sure he would have, but I just never asked him. And um, I was, you know, I was a little nervous about the conversation because I had kind of built it up in my head a little bit, but it went every bit as well as I, I could have ever imagined it would go. We talked for about an hour and a half. We talked about uh, the state of digital marketing, uh, transitioning from agency life to solopreneur life, podcasting, a lot of other stuff. And it was a, a really just super enjoyable conversation. It's it was really a model of everything that I hope that this show can be. So um, I hope that you enjoy this episode. I enjoyed recording it an awful lot. And um, my hope is that you get a lot out of it, but also that you consider sharing this episode and maybe turning somebody else onto the show. Um, this is a big one for me. Hope you enjoy. All right. Welcome back to Shareable. Today, I think the only appropriate way to start out this interview is, so who are you and what do you do? <laughs> oh, Jeff, have you been listening to my show? <laughs> uh, for, for a bit, for a bit of time. <laughs> okay, good. Well, my name is Mitch Joel, and I... Um, it's a good question. What do I, what does Mitch Joel do? I, I have a podcast called six pixels of separation, which I started shortly after I started blogging blog of the same name, which was all part of a digital marketing agency that I owned and was a partner in called twist image, um, which led to a book called six pixels of separation and a second book called control alt delete, which led to a business growing that I then sold to a large multinational holding company called WPP, which led to Twist Image, my agency becoming a global agency called Miram, which led to me leaving and exiting uh, a couple of years back, one and a half years back. And now I basically uh, create content. I speak a lot and I invest in companies. I advise companies and I'm currently thinking about startup-y things. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. It's a little longer than Seth Godin's I Notice Things. Well, I'm not that famous. No. Not I yet. still have to create uh, a presence of credibility. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Seth can just say, I'm Seth, and you go, it's credible. Okay, good. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair yeah. point. Well, I'm really glad to have you on the show. Um, I probably mentioned to you before, I've been listening to your podcast forever. It was actually the inspiration behind me getting started in podcasting in the first place. Oh. I just, I've always loved the way that you navigate interviews. I didn't quite realize that it could be done quite the way that you do it. So I've always really appreciated it. And I've, I've tried to model a lot of my style after it because I think you ask really deep probing questions a lot of the time uh, and something I've always really enjoyed. And um, a mutual friend of ours, Laura Gassner-Odding, uh, has commended me on that. So I think uh, by, by way of sort of the transitive property, she's commending you on it. So thanks for <laughs> okay. the inspiration all these years. Well, I appreciate that. That's very, very kind of you. And I didn't know that. So when I hear it, I, I'm Canadian. And I'm a bit neurotic, so I, I don't know how to accept that very well, but I'm going to try and just say thank you. Oh, well, that's another thing we share in common. Uh, I, 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 so I hate my birthday because I hate when all the attention is on me for that day. Uh, but the other 364 days, I absolutely love the attention. But at that same time, if somebody compliments me, I'm like, oh, stop it. You're being ridiculous. There's no way that I did that. That's nuts. Yeah, I tend to use sarcasm or, or darker humor. And I've I've realized as I get older that – it's kind of a defense mechanism and it's not really appropriate. And so I've been trying and working very hard at being able to look someone in the eye and say, thank you. So thank you. 
Oh, good. You're yeah. welcome. Um, all right. So I got a bunch of stuff that I want to ask you about because I mean, it's been, uh, it's been years I've been following your blog and your podcast. So there's just a whole bunch of stuff that I want to get into with you. Um, so I want to start, I'm going to kind of lay out like the flow of kind of things I want to talk about with you and okay. whatever we can. Uh, I want to start with kind of the social and digital marketing side of things. Cause that's where you came from. And similar to you, I'm kind of in a transition out of that. So I want to talk about kind of like where you see the state of things, things like that. And then I want to move a little bit into this world of moving from agency to kind of solopreneur consultant speaker life. Uh, and then I want to kind of cap it off with, with podcasting a little bit. I want to talk to you about like how you go about doing your podcast, things like that. So uh, starting at the top, you were you were in um, music prior to getting into the whole world of digital marketing, and now you've shifted to more like innovation and tech and AI and listening devices and all that sort of stuff. But if we go all the way back, it was it was kind of music was your your first like big thing, right? I mean, I'm sure that you have the squiggle career, but like that's a thing that d- directly preceded digital, right? Yes and no. I mean, I get that a lot. Yes, I was in the music industry. I was a music journalist. I published music magazines before the internet existed. When the internet came on, I was definitely one of the first people to publish on the internet, putting aside, you know, sort of music side, just in general, publishing for, from all publications. And I did it for a long time. And then I had a couple of gigs in between. One was building a sales channel for a search engine prior to Google existing. One was working in mobile content at a time when there was no smartphones or web browser, mobile web browser, like hardly even interoperability between carriers for for text messaging. And then I did the agency thing. And so when a lot of my friends from the music business see me as a speaker, author, agency, entrepreneur, they're like, how did you do it? Like a very similar question. And I guess when I think about it, I think about it differently. I look at it more like I've always been interested in media and technology. And the output of my career at that point was in music and entertainment. And then what happened along the way is just my interest in media and technology, which then started to merge, came together. And I was sort of always doing this. I mean, in my magazine, I was selling advertising and sponsorship and figuring out publishing and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot more connective tissue, at least for me when I look at my life versus if you knew me as a music writer and then saw me on stage. <laughs> so, yeah. so, the, so it's a strange thing for me to, to, to explain to someone because they would go, oh, you're like a cat and you've had nine lives. And I always look at it and I go, there's a real thick red thread that goes through it all, which is media, technology, culture, and advertising. So, so and obviously innovation, because always playing with the new platform. So I don't 100% see it that way, but I'm respectful of people who are like, how did you make the transition? That's how I didn't really see it as a transition. Got it. So that's really helpful because I never actually understood that that really does connect the dots that there was like, first of all, there's that piece in between the music and the, the agency. Uh, but also that like, the the music part of it was about publishing online and there's that connection through line of media and technology and all that. So that makes things make a lot more sense to me now. Um, okay. So that became your kind of through line. So now let, let's kind of go back in time a little bit. Now you're, you're running a digital agency. You're in that world. Um, you know, what, what drew you to it outside of the, because when you talk about it, it's not, I don't really sense that you're talking in general when I've listened to like your older podcasts, like you weren't talking necessarily about the media. Like you were talking about, how the media facilitates connection and what it's doing to culture and what it's doing to the world. So like, is that what drew you into building an agency? And then is that the sort of work that you wound up doing at the agency? Well, you have to understand that if you go back to the music business um, at the time that I was very prolific in it and present, 
it was the internet was just coming on and there were certain bands that were doing stuff online and I was already doing stuff online where I was like, this band gets it. They understand what's going to happen. They need a website. They need to be sharing content. They need to be open to a community. They need to create a community. All this sort of stuff that now we take as total table stakes in how you would build and promote yourself. On the other side, you had a record industry that was still very much thinking physically. They're still very much thinking about physical retail. They were trying to hold on to something in a world of Napster and Metallica and things like that, which was very much in my sort of active purview. As my interest in technology evolved, I started really believing in the power of brand and in the power of using technology to create a direct connection and to almost circumvent certain intermediaries media companies, uh, publishers, but at the same time, opportunities for publishers to create new channels by which to distribute their stories, their content, their voices. Okay? So if you think about it from that perspective, I'm sort of there. I'm thinking about it. At the time, right before the agency, I launched a record label. And again, we were thinking about things very differently. We had distribution through Universal, which is one of the largest music labels at the time. And I was just really feeling this push. I meet uh, two out of my three business partners and I see what they're doing in a multimedia 3D CD-ROM webish type of world. And I'm like, I feel this and I see this. At the same time, I'm reading a book called The Clue Train Manifesto. And that was really the book. That and the sort of thinking of Tom Peters and the brand of you and Fast Company, there was just a lot of good timing and good moments for me to think we're doing this wrong. That if you're a brand and you actually want to truly create an infrastructure of success, lead generation, brand storytelling, uh, actual transactions, that this technology will provide you with the direct path. And not only that, I really saw digital in, in, a, in a different way. And we can talk about what, what happened because I, I think I was right, but yeah. then wrong about how it evolved. Um, I really saw it as you can have direct interactions with like human beings. Like you can have human interactions with human beings in a very powerful way. Markets are conversations. One of the sayings from Gutrain Manifesto. So for me, when Twist Image, which was the digital agency uh, that we really sort of took and built, I felt like we had a reason to speak to brands about building websites, thinking about things like e-commerce very early days. Uh, you know, social came in a couple years after as mobile came in, as e-commerce became pro proficient, as social media then came in, and that became a real sort of like, we need to speak to these massive brands that we're dealing with about this entire world of connections and media and access. So I would love to say how salient I was and how brilliant I was, but there was a lot of right place at the right time. And then a lot of things that were, were just culturally impacting me that made me feel like there's a better way to do this. Add repetition, impression, fine, but I don't think that that was working for someone like me who was at the time on Yahoo customizing my homepage and choosing things that I wanted to and being very clear to the publisher and then to other brands what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And that was a real gateway for me in terms of what could a brand be? And then at the same time, for sure, what could an agency be? I mean, this was, this was a very different time when we built this business, uh, 
agencies thought we were insane. I mean, we would just get the call because they were like, the client is talking about the internet and we're like, you know, completely lost. And we were already optimizing and building really efficient engines of digital platforms. So it was a very, very fortuitous moment. So for me, Groundswell was very similar to like your Clue Train Manifesto sure. moment. Like that's the one that kind of triggered for me, like, holy crap, there's this whole other way of looking at this. And when I built True Voice Media, I really was, in a, I had a very similar kind of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, optimistic view of like these technologies being able to connect human beings, really allow brands to see their customers as human beings, understand them, appreciate them, gave us the ability to connect across time and geography without taking into consideration all the things that could get in the way of us connecting with one another. And I was so optimistic about it. Um, and I've heard in, and, and I don't know if you've said it explicitly, but I've heard in some of your more recent stuff, like I think you have a similar kind of feeling towards what it became versus what maybe you thought it would be. Um, talk to me a little bit like how you see the state of digital right now, because for me, I, I see that it is nothing like what I envisioned in the disruptive way that I thought it was going to be for the benefit of all mankind. I, I've seen it kind of turn the corner into something pretty ugly. Um, and it's, it's become less fun than it once was and less exciting. What do you see about the state of things? Are you, are you still like really keeping your eye on it? Do you still tinker with things? Like do you have a TikTok account? Like where are you on things? Don't have a TikTok account, but we can get there. Um, I don't fully agree with your position. So, which is fine. You can have That's your position. Fine. I can have mine. Um, I think if you go back and look at my writing, my conversations, uh, if you look at both books and videos of me speaking, I think it is true and accurate and still true that we live in a world where any individual or company can create content in text, images, audio, and video, long form or short form, and instantly publish them to the world for free. Yes. And that creates an energy it creates a pulse, it creates a connection that we never had before and that has fundamentally changed the game. I believe that it is still true that it is a world where a thousand flowers can blossom and grow, that any individual can create something and have it resonate throughout the world that could lead to other amazing and compelling things that we see happen every day, whether it's a viral video or a concept or a tweet or, or whatever it might be. I think where I underestimated or was wrong is in the fact that having that access because major players became so powerful that the model of three networks and that's all you get to watch and they decide what's there has been replicated in a digital channel where you have a Google, Facebook, Amazon-ish. I mean, you can't really publish on Amazon, but, but you know, you can publish books, but you don't really have it as a social network it's uh, on Twitter. Wall, basically that um, that's become paid channels completely. Um, but when I look at it from that purview too, and this is stuff I was talking about in early days, it makes sense to me because what happened is people were like, oh, it's free and you can publish and they abused it. And so Facebook as a great example was in a predicament. We can either let all this stuff come out you know, we're a brand and all we're doing is posting things like, you know, it's like a picture of the sun and it says like this, if you like the sun, which is what people were doing nonstop and brands doing nonstop. And that would erode the user base. It would erode people's experiences. They said, what's the best way to do this? And their solution was let's charge. So even though you have the likes and follows, 
if you want to access that audience, you have to pay for it. We are going to keep pressing down this organic content and make you pay through promotion and stuff like that. It wound up being a very formidable business model that worked really, really well. It wound up keeping engagement up and people going back and back, which enabled them to empower uh, a very, very powerful engine of targeting and optimization. So the data came from that as well. And that created multiple channels that opened them up to things like acquisitions of things like Instagram and, and the sort of world we have now. So that's the big one, that social media is a paid media channel, I think would be the one that I got wrong. Uh, because I still, to this day, speaking to you, would say, you can still publish for free and start a blog and do all that. But the truth is to actually get it to scale, you need to pay. It is a me There is a media uh, intermediary now that, that has to be resolved if you really want to push things forward. So that's one thing. Two is correct. I figured the world is 2% evil and the internet sees it at scale because we're seeing a much bigger population. I just didn't think that the actual technology that, that in theory was going to be used to make advertising better, more targeted, more relevant, would be used as some form of weaponization. Whether it's the subjugation of a certain type of human, whether it's political, whether it's even brand-based and using it in a very nefarious way, I should have been not as rosy glassed or, as, or, or just Pollyanna in seeing that, you know, it is like everything else agnostic. And so that's maybe where you and I differ, where I don't think it's suddenly dark. I think it's still agnostic. I think there's a lot of really, really good online. In fact, that's mostly what I see. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like people saying Vegas, it's like really seedy and scuzzy. I'm like, if you look for it, but you can go to Vegas and have a very clean experience, actually. You just go to nice restaurants and hang out in a nice neighborhood. It's very easy to do that. And the internet is really much that mirror of, of society, but we see it at scale and it travels faster. So it's that side. Now, am I on the Jared Lanier side of like, here's, here's 20 reasons why you should delete your social media accounts? I think for certain people, I am. But this is where I think I was also right. And I think it's a platform that people can think about, which is people tend to use social and brands do as well to be very personal. And I've always said that I'm not personal at all on these platforms. I'm very personable. And that the pursuit that I am pursuing is one where if I'm building a personal brand or corporate brand, it's to be providing value. It's to be an engine of which if someone is deciding between me and someone else, when they see my content, they will be like, that has helped me. He's added value to my business, my brand, the way I think, the way I want to see things. And I think that that is still very, very much where we are at. Unfortunately, the other outcome that I didn't see is the high level of narcissism and the higher level of self-promotion. And you know, I would argue that you know, taking selfies of yourself and, you know, in front of a mirror or self-quoting with a picture of yourself or, um, you know, you sort of see in my business, the hashtag speaker life. I follow a lot of these people and my general feeling is it's very personal and they seem to be doing such great stuff, but it's enough to make anybody jealous. But I actually don't know what their engine is. I don't know what their content is. I don't know what their domain of authority is. 
And that's where I, I differ a little bit in what you're saying, because I think that if people were really speaking to their domain of authority, creating original content, curating great content, helping me be a better salesperson, a better leader, a better futurist, a better marketer, a better, there's tremendous value in that. And I'd like to think that I've been consistent in delivering that type of content and that others would probably benefit from that type of thinking. Less pictures of your kids or things that are personal and more about being personable. This is why people come to me for something. So that's sort of a very long-winded response. Yeah, I, I'm, no, I'm I mean, sorry, Jeff. No, it's, it's a good response. I, I, would, I would say, you know, while I characterize social media and all these channels as, as being kind of gloom and doom, I, I still see all of the wonderful opportunities. I still advise people on it. I still work with brands. I still work with individuals. So I'm not like all bad on it, but I do think that it, it sounds a little charitable um, that it, just in kind of like the, the you know, uh, explanation of like how Facebook kind of dealt with the problem. Like I think if you play it out, what it actually wound up working into is that the enragement uh, creates the engagement. So these algorithms favor the outrage. That's why we see it more. And so like that sort of thing is kind of the thing that I look at and I'm, I'm a little bit disgusted by because on the kind of like personal versus personable side, I guess where I, I slightly differ with you on this is that for me, they're kind of one and the same. The way that I am on this podcast, the way that I am on my social media, the way that you interact with me, I think for as much as possible, I think it's the same experience that you get of at least a getting of me. And I try to provide value to people wherever I'm doing it, whether I'm meeting with them at a coffee shop or whether I'm talking with them on a podcast. Um, but for me, I, I think part of the reason why I can connect with people is because I actually do give a crap about those personal things, right? Like what's going on in their life? Why are they sad? What interaction did they have? And that's a point of being able to find a way to connect. And that's the thing that I think I've always appreciated from the very beginning of social and digital was this idea that we could actually see each other as human beings, not just as like personal brands or centers of value. And, and I, I think kind of where we probably would align is if we started to look at which channel you're using for what. So for instance, I don't want to see, you know, pictures of your kid on LinkedIn, but I'm not upset about it when I see it on Facebook or if I see it in your Instagram story. It makes sense there, right? Unless yeah. your, your profile is about hashtag speaker life, right? So I think that's probably somewhere where the way that we, we see it uh, kind of differently would, would come together and we probably would see it the same as which channel are we talking about. Yeah, so I would, I would, I would respond by saying agree. Uh, and I think that that content is what I would call ancillary content or secondary content. Mm -hmm. So you're following me because you love the show, you love my links, you love my content. And then, oh, look, there's Mitch at, you know, the Rush concert. Oh, look, Mitch is doing a bass podcast. Oh, look, Mitch is at, a, at an airport and ran into Hugh Jackman. I feel like that content adds to the personability of the, of the brand and the character. And I have actually have no issue with it. I choose my levels of what I want to connect and not connect, but I actually agree with you that I think that that content yeah. creates that where, where I would go back and forth with you and happy to is when you talk about, you know, who would have thought that we'd be in this place where all of this content is used in this sort of negative way. I would just say, yeah, but you know, if it bleeds, it leads that happened yeah. long before Facebook, uh, newspapers, TV, radio, any sort of negative thing, this is how it went. When we talk about the politics sides of it, I would say, can you name me a media source now that you're older that didn't have a political leaning? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not you saying know, wrong about any of it. I was just I yeah, was more yeah. naive, more optimistic, so I didn't really see it coming. 
Right. Yeah. And I, I would say yes to that. And in terms of, of the part that I don't think we saw coming is that, you know, I, I realized from day one that this platform is free and the cost of entry is my information and data. So that trigger of why personable, not personal was that. Mm -hmm. I knew that if I'm going to be having all this fun stuff and not paying for it, you know, look around. If you don't see the product, you're the product. I think people are, are not as media savvy as you and I. I don't think people right. are as technologically savvy as you and I. They just go, wow, this is cool. Here's my whole life. And then when they see how this turns out in terms of being targeted data used, data being thrown, thrown to third-party apps, to hacks, breaches, we don't even know where our data is anymore. You can be the most sophisticated person or not. No, I'm not blaming people. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely blaming platform here. Mm -hmm. I just would even argue that I don't even think the platform realized what the platform was doing. And a lot of times that, that happens, that happens. I, you know, it's very easy to look at stories in reverse and go Facebook evil, Google evil. I don't know that I buy that narrative. I also not being a conspiracy theorist at all. I do look at business at a macro level and go, who did Facebook and Google impact the most? And the truth is traditional media channels. And any chance traditional media channels have had over the years, it's been magnified a lot. Now to poke them in the eye, they've done. Craigslist too would be another you know, impacting platform for them. And now that there's this sort of open field on them and rightfully so, I'm just saying that there's a lot of gaslighting that's happening because they have the most to gain. These traditional media channels have the most to gain by as many negative tech stories or pushing for it as possible. The numbers just came out, look at Apple, look at Facebook, look at Instagram, look at your TikTok. People don't feel the same way that media institutions and governments do about this. Now that's problematic because we just spoke about them not being necessarily all media savvy, but there is another layer of narrative that we don't hear, which is that these media companies, every time that they have something, they're the ones that benefit from it very much financially. My favorite example of this is there was two very large features on Jeff Bezos, post-hack and post, you know, uh, whatever happened with marriage and, and all that sort of craziness and, you know, illicit photographs. And if you read these very traditional media outlets who put cover stories on him that were like an hour to read, you read it and you go, doesn't seem like that bad of a CEO. In fact, considering what he's running, like pretty impressive how he's how he's done things and again i'm not on amazon side versus the media side but i did look at those articles and think you know if you were being non-political and non is big business good or bad for the little person what's happening in factory workers and rights and all, all problems yes 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 was that a fair was that a fair feature and more often than not it looked like they were trying to find things that weren't there and creating suspicion more than following uh, down the road. So again, I'm not leaning towards, I think all data, I think all these companies are great and innocent and nice, and we're just being too hard on them. I question how much of it is even in their own control. And, and it's the same when you talk about wealth and the wealth disparity. It's like J Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates are doing a lot to put back what is being extracted. And you, I almost look at it and go like, I don't think they're in control of how much wealth they have. It's just spinning and spinning because of the way the economics works and the world works that makes it unmanageable to a certain degree. It's ridiculous and unmanageable. And there's a lot of challenges that come with all of this, a lot.
I, I'm probably just a lot more cynical than you. I look at like lobbying efforts and all those different things. And I think, well, you know, it's just naturally unethical, but yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're right. You're, yeah. you're not wrong. You know, I so, mean, to, to kind of button up the point on it though, um, if you're looking out at all this stuff and, and there's, I, you feel very balanced to me in the way that you look at it. Obviously I, I, my hand is shown I'm cynical about all these kind of things. And I think that we should be, you know, on team human and trying to do our best to, to protect people's rights and their data and all those sort of things. And damn it, if you're making billions of dollars a year, you know, I don't care if it's in your control or not figure out how to make it under your control. So that's kind of the side I take on it. And I'm sure that there's things that you're, you're probably, um, a little more aggressive about your stance and things that you're probably much more charitable in. But if you could change any one thing about the current state of digital as you see it, and it doesn't have to be one thing, I guess it could be a, a slew of things that are connected, but like you're looking out at the media landscape. Um, you know, we're seeing that the impact of social media on journalism is making it more and more difficult for, you know, traditional media and traditional journalism to survive and thrive. And at the same time, social networks are allowing the spread of misinformation and all those sorts of things. And then you've got the algorithms and yada, 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 all these different things that are happening. You, you're as plugged in and more so than I am. What's something that you would look at and say, you know, I think this would make a really massively big impact on the overall quality of our lives and it would benefit all people involved. And this is, you know, the decree of Mitch. Yeah. And it's, it's really one word. And I think that when you splice the word up and think about it at a macro levels, I think it's actually really doable and it, it sort of absolves me of maybe my sins of comment and might absolve you of your sins of comment in the conversation too. And it's transparency. It's this concept of, from a personal side, let my data go. Let me see when I'm on Facebook exactly where and what is happening. And let me just go, okay, okay, no, no, no. And be able to export and transport that wherever I may wish. So I think one is that side. And I think on what I see as a customer side, it's transparency too. I would love to see every piece of content that isn't from Jeff or my family or my friend, a very clear delineation of how it got to me. And if I don't want to see it again, or it might be questionable, I want the ability to understand it or even have a thermometer of from green to red, how true we might think this is. And it sounds simplistic, but I think it's really, really profound. And I also would love to see, based off of that transparency, the ability not just to know where it's from, but how it was targeted. So if you're a brand and you take an ad on Facebook, let's call it because we'd like to pick on them. I love I Go yeah, for it. I would love to see, like, okay, you're seeing this ad. This ad was bought and paid by this. If you have questions on a like red to green temperature, how legit we think this organization is. And then I'd like to know in sort of like those little, little boxes they put under everything, who they targeted to buy this ad. I think transparency, I think light is a great disinfectant. And I think opening that part up will not impact their business. I think if anything, it will increase their business and make them wealthier. I think it will give people the ability to move from an Instagram to a Facebook with more confidence and comfort because I see it and I actually control the flow of this or where that information is being picked off or from. So if a company wants to target me, why couldn't I be notified? You know, Procter and Gamble would like to target me with toothpaste ads, you know? Okay, no. Yeah. You know, okay or not. And again, I know I'm being simplistic, but I do think that just this idea of transparency my ability to see the data, my ability to see where information that's not a friend is coming from, 
would be a massive step in levels of comfort and and reality. I mean, how, how is it that you know you post that so and so passed away, some celebrity passed away, and it's from three years ago, and there's not the ability with very basic technology to say, please note that this article is from 2012 yeah. or whatever. Now, on the other side of this, which is where I become more empathetic to these platforms, is it's easy to say what you're saying. And I'm a fan of Doug Rushkoff. He's been on my show multiple times. I love the guy. I love Team Human. I love almost everything he says. I don't know how feasible it is. I don't know if there's enough humans in the world or technology in the world to fix the situation we currently find ourselves in. <laughs> if you are at YouTube and you are making people sign a waiver if they're going to work there that they may get post-traumatic stress disorder because anybody can upload videos of them hurting animals or people or whatever it might be, there's a bigger problem than Canton. I think we are too quick to say it's your fault platform and create a technology because technology exists. I just don't think either are true. I just don't think there's enough humans in the world to, to moderate or control every human in the world sharing stuff. And that's where I get a little bit on the side of the platforms where I'm like, we need something bigger here. We just need something bigger here because I don't think we also want a private or public corporation business to decide what we should or should not see from who and from where. That's also a pretty dangerous road. I'm Canadian. I'm presuming as Americans, it's even tougher for because freedom is way more important, obviously, in the States than it is in a more socialist country like I live in Canada. So that's the challenge that goes against the stuff I'm saying, which is our expectation that they can technologically moderate it or have enough bodies to figure this out. I think it's a somewhat absurd resolution. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. I think it's probably somewhere in between if we're, if we're being realistic about it. Like I think that's a, that's an, that's a empathizing with the platform and kind of being charitable to it. And I'm probably like, we'll fix everything. You can do it all. And there's probably the truth lies somewhere in between where it's like, they can obviously do a much better job than they're doing. They can yeah. probably bring in outside voices. They could probably have more diverse teams that catch these things before they ever build it in the first place. I think I sent you over a book recommendation, uh, ruined by design by Mike Montero. And, and I think actually that's another reason one of the, the reasons why I'm, I'm particularly cynical is I think that book lays out a really good case of why things are broken because they were broken in the first place through bad decisions. But I also don't like people in general, and there's a bunch who have either never worked there or have worked there and left, and then they, they sort of point the finger. You yeah. know, my analogy is I come from the marketing agency business, and I can't tell you how many agency executives build very good lives over decades and then sell for millions or hundreds of millions and then become customer advocates. Oh, yeah. oh, so does bad for you. Oh, oh, the, oh, big pharma. Yeah. It's like you're an engineer of a process. Um, and I feel there's a lot of that in tech, right? It's like the people who invented the word social media are now fight, raging against it. Oh, you know, the number one investor in Facebook, like, oh, I've made my billions. So now I can talk about how bad it was. Like those people if this were a war or in any form of army would be literally charged for crimes against humanity. Yeah. <laughs> like, like you, you don't just get to walk away from a war zone and say, Oh, they're, they're really, they really are Nazis. Like, yeah, they, they, we, we had, we had concentration camps. Like it's doesn't work like that. You were implicit in the action of it. And unless you left after six months and didn't capitalize and then gave all that money to some you know, charitable group, I just have a hard time with that too, personally. No, I completely agree with it. So shifting a little bit out of digital. So you 
you know, I came upon you in the more kind of digital marketing Mitch days. And since then, you've shifted, you know, control, alt, delete, I feel like was a little bit of a, um, a launching point, at least externally, like from an outside point of view, it seemed like a launching point for you to really kind of start to make that shift in, um, in where you were going with things. Um, and now you're more in like the AI tech. To, so I guess I'll let you do a better job of explaining kind of like <laughs> what your thing is right now. But I, the thing I want to ask you before you get into that is, do you ever still get kind of labeled as like the social media guy, the yeah. marketing guy? And and how do you how do you break that to let people know what you're in now? Because I'm I'm currently going through that, and I'd I'd love to know any tips that you've got on on how to do it. Because when I get called a social media consultant now, like my my stomach just kind of flips over a little bit. So like what, what's your approach to it? And then like, what, what's your thing now that you would say? Yeah. I mean, it's a challenge and I'd love to share notes, you know, because I, I don't know that I've mastered this. I've been with my speaking bureau for let's call it 15 years. And when I came in, I was really talking about personal branding and how to leverage digital channels to build an individual brand. And of course that's transferable to a business. And that led to a very fortuitous line of business in the agency of of public speaking. And now that I'm sort of in the world I'm in, it's very hard to, to, to let those salespeople know, you know, that I'm not the personal brand, social media, digital guy. I wouldn't say anymore because I still am. Like you could get up there and riff on it, but like, that's not what you want to do. Well, I still do. I mean, I still, you know, I still have a keynote that talks about how to build a content marketing center of excellence. I still believe in brand storytelling versus what most brands do in terms of lead gen. And I think there's not a balance or, or an equity. And I think there's tremendous power in, in people telling their story through the power of content. So I still believe in it. I've got an article coming out in the next few days about personal brand because I think personal brand isn't about narcissism and self-promotion. It's about domain of authority and how you could do that. So let's reclaim that. So I'm careful not to say I'm not that guy. And I'm careful to not say I'm not a marketing guy because I am. I'm more strategic in the platform. So my platform right now is basically decode the future, right? I help leaders decode the future. I help uh, groups decode the future. I talk about the intersection of brands, consumers, and technology. If you really look at that, it is so similar and close to what I've always done. What have I done in my career? I have taken large national brands and helped them figure out what channels work to connect best to consumers. That hasn't changed. And so if we're in a world now where artificial intelligence can be used as a layer on top of the conversation to build those connections in a more efficient and pragmatic way, I'm open to it. So I'm also able to look back and go, yeah, all pre-websites, we were using print media, which is what I was doing in advertising. And then as the internet came on, it was both websites and search. And then as that evolved, there was like social and then there was e-commerce and then there was mobile or whatever the, the order was. None of that's changed. I mean, if I still look at what I talk about, I talk about one thing. What has changed in our consumer's behavior that we're not paying attention to to optimize our business? And the truth is, you have to be discussing things like marketing, things like social, and things like content. I can't avoid the reality of what it is. I just have to be able to acknowledge that perhaps engines have changed. There's been a democratization of e-commerce platforms because of companies like Shopify, which I'm very close to. There has been a democratization of content and access because of platforms like Twitter and smaller screens. 
I can't not look at AI and think, wow, we have companies who've accumulated a lot of data and information. It needs to be manipulated or cleaned in a specific way and then can be used at scale in ways in which maybe we couldn't think of or with speed in which humans can't and say, I can't talk about that. That's really out of my wheelhouse. It's exactly in my wheelhouse. So I look at things as I have from basically day one. Brand, this is triangle. And I talk about this all the time. Brands, consumers, technology. How has the relationship with a brand changed because of technology? How has technology changed the relationship between a consumer and a brand? And how do consumers use brands with technology? How do consumers use technology to connect to a brand? It's always been that. It's still that. I would say that the bullseye in that triangle, which was primarily marketing, has evolved to being more around innovation only because even when I was in a marketing agency and had a marketing role, the conversations that I had as president were much more around how do we go from here to where the world is now? How do we go from where the world is now to tomorrow? What's now? What's next? So I'm just using the language that I've always used, but you're right that I can't stop the fact that I've been blogging early and on Twitter early and on and podcasting early and people sort of know me as that person. But if you scratch beneath that surface, I was never really that person. That was an advertising channel for the agency. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is, it's complex. It's not easy. I think like anything else, it takes a, a couple of years, if, if not longer but I believe it is my domain of authority and always has been. I was an early adopter. I continue to be an early adopter. I'm an investor. I'm an advisor. I'm an author. But I don't want to down, ever downplay the power of marketing. Products, price, promotion, place. As the world moves faster and gets more technologically intense, any business that hasn't mastered that is not going anywhere. Well, I think just even in this conversation, um, you've kind of connected the dots for me really nicely about kind of what that underlying through line is versus the thing that I think you, you kind of see as an outsider. Um, so I'm sure you'll have some success with it. That's one of the things I've been trying to do is incorporate social media and my interest in it into kind of my larger story and the thing that has always been the through line. Um, so I guess I, I wish you as much luck as I wish myself in, in being able to shed the monikers and, you know, reframe the story so that people better understand what you're all about now, which is what you've really always been about. It's just recontextualizing it. Yeah, I mean, the truth in this conversation, Jeff, is that people will perceive you in the way in which they need change. So I, I can't look at that as a negative because the truth is for 20 years, people saw social, digital, mobile, e-com as a dramatic shift in how they operated and wanted people at the table who could have that conversation with them. So for me to sit here and say, I'm not that guy anymore. I'm no longer with an agency. I don't talk marketing. I don't talk brands. I don't do it. it would be you know, one inauthentic, but I would say professionally, it would be stupid. I'm a youngish person. I still have some years ahead of me. Why would I ever go, you know, all this stuff is done. I sold my agency. I'm out of that business. It's not true. I'm not in the agency business, but I am still 100% the business I've always been in since I was 18 years old which is technology is cool. I love technology. I think it's going to change the way we can be connected to one another and to businesses. And I love it. And that's probably not going to change. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what's your transition been like? Like, so, so you, you talk about leaving. The yeah. Agency, now you're like doing the solo thing. Like what's that been like? How long did it like, did you like leave in like day, day two after you've left? You're like Mitch Joel incorporated. Here I am. Or like, did <laughs> you, did you, 
kind of step away from consulting and strategy or did you just want to kind of do it more on your own terms? Like kind of talk to me a little bit about what that's sure. looked like going from one to the other. Yeah. One is I don't, I don't consult and I probably never will. I don't mind advising, but I don't consult and I consider them two very different things. Yeah. Can you just quickly explain the difference between those two? Yeah. Advising is I'm either being paid and or taking equity to help a startup, a business, a fund do better. But a consultant is like, I am going to create a mandate. I'm going to present a deck. I'm going to give you ideas that you're not working on. I don't do that. I, I, I just advise. I, you know, you don't sit and sort of you know, rattle through some ideas. I'm happy to do it, but I'm not here to pitch my services, to create a deck, to be an outside person with a perspective. Not at all the world that I'm playing in at, at all right now. Uh, the transition was uh, seamless. I would say, now run the agency for you know close to 18 years. We sell to a large multinational company called WPP. Uh, you you are on an earnout. There's no sort of secrets here. It's multiple years for me. It was close to five years, happily and, and really happy. And at the end, it's not like I'm done, you're done, you're fired, you're leaving. It can be, but it wasn't for us. It was more like, what do you want to do now? And it became a conversation of of you know personal conversation of figuring out, do I want to be an employee? Or do I want to go on? Now, I had a weird situation, which is six pixels of separation, which was owned by the agency and then owned by this multi-conglomerate. And I also had a speaking career owned by the agency and owned by the conglomerate. None of that money ever came out. None of it ever came to me. It always went into the business, which became a very strong revenue line. It helped support business development initiatives. And I think it was attractive, to be honest, to an acquisition because we had monetized thought leadership, for lack of a cheesier term. So... For me, the conversation was, can I do this on my own? Because you actually own my customers. You own six pixels. You own my relationship with the agency. You own my my book deal. I mean, you own that. And they were really, really gracious. They understood that that was my path. I think they understood that if they kept it, they could, but it would probably die in the vine because there wasn't somebody else who was there going, I want to do six pixels. Let's go. So they were very gracious with me and it, 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 very gracious and very generous and very much like, how can I help? Can I come back and speak? Can, you know, do you want to use, do you want to keep an archive of my, like, I was like, do whatever you want. It's yours. I'm the one not in the position of power and I'm just happy to have a piece if I can. And they basically, you know, let me have it. And it was great. And, and so I left the day I left like the official end date. It wasn't like I have to jump in. I had speaking events coming up that I needed somebody to be able to write a check to. So, you know, myself and one of my business partners just basically incorporated six pixels or I don't know, incorporate, but just started the business so that there's a place to transfer some of these contracts to. And it became a conversation about, okay, so we're going to, I'm going to speak, we're going to invest, we're going to advise, we're going to maybe do something else. Uh, we still need a, a holding company of our own to sort of have it go through. The, the challenge, the emotional, it was more of an emotional challenge was, that's my life. I spent 18 years there. I had a team. Yeah. I, had, I had multiple offices. I could go to any city and walk into an office. And a company. Yeah. And I, I was pr- I'm proud of it still. It's an amazing company with 3,000 people. And it's part of Wonderman Thompson, which is its own beautiful, massive thing. It's an amazing thing to see. And I loved it. Loved the brand. Still, still do. I had an interesting thing where I'm speaking 40 to 60 times a year, which is essentially, if you know anything about speaking, it's a full-time job. Yeah. Plus I was running an agency. So when I left, it was more like, 
oh my God, like I had two full-time jobs. <laughs> so it's been more personal in terms of rewiring myself to recognize that speaking is a full-time job and this other stuff I'm adding on is, is a lot. Um, and then does that mean I have a lot more capacity or does that mean I was running very, very hard for a long time and I should figure out what, what kind of balance I want? Um, and that's more where, where the hard struggle is. It's, it's in figuring out, do I have it in me to do another run? Because I think any run in any startup is at least 10 years on a good day. Yeah. Um, and then the other run is speaking is a really good business. And it doesn't require, once you get to a certain level, you know, four or five gigs is most people's salary for a year. And so it's hard, you know, someone's like, hey, you want to come be the CEO or CMO? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I want that type of pressure in a world where I could get two or three more gigs and, you know, life is, life is pretty good for me. So it's that. It's more that where it's like, what do I do with six pixels of separation? What do I do with speaking? How do I see investing and advising? If I'm going to start up, do I want to be hands in or nose in or both? Um, and also, I think the assets that I have in terms of six pixels need some TLC. I mean, it's been a long time of content. It's done well, but it could do much better. So those are the conversations that I'm having. And those are, that's, the, that's been the struggle. I look back on the agency in a very simplistic way. We started a small business here in Montreal, Canada, where I live. We expanded to Toronto. We became one of the larger independent agencies in Canada, maybe North America. We sold to the number one player. We then took various assets that they had with other entrepreneurs and built this engine called Miram, which became 3,000 people in 30 countries. And then J. Walter Thompson, which was really our house, became Wonderman Thompson. I left right before that happened. I look at it and go like check mark. Like that's a really good entrepreneur's journey. Yeah. Challenges, sure. Always the happiest of days. Of course not. It's business. It's tough. It's hard. Things change. It's a public company with a lot of pressure. Yes, yes, yes. Not always pleasant, not always grand. But as an overall story arc, I feel it's a good story. So I can't do anything but look at it. Even when we sold the business, people would say, you know, you sold your baby. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Like I did it willingly. And so I have to be prepared to be an employee for the years that I was. And I was very happy doing that. Not always easy, but happy. Would you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Like, because like just the idea. So I sold my company uh, in uh, late 2017 and I made it a year and a half uh, in, the, in the agency that acquired me. And it was very uncomfortable for me not being like the guy, like the yeah, not me. No, no, I'm I no. I I think that if if you feel like it's going to be uncomfortable, this is advice I give to to people all the time who are in the middle of acquisitions. Don't do it. I knew that every day after I sell, they are the boss, and my job is to manage to the best of my ability and lead to the best of my ability. But ultimately, their decision, not mine, not mine. I also didn't believe that it was my baby. It was a business and the business was created to make money and the business was created to help me make more money. And the business was created to scale. I didn't want a small business. So getting it to where Miriam got to me was a big check mark in the personal sort of success side of your pluses and minuses. Yeah. So I never had a day where I thought like that at all because I went in eyes wide open saying, it's not, I can't be like that. It's not my right. I have to know that every day I come to work for however long I sign my earn out my contract, they are the boss. I am the employee. And it was fine. Very mature way of looking at it. 
It, it's the only way I could look at it. And, yeah. and, I, and I was happy to do it. So when you say you're an entrepreneur, I kind of roll my eyes. I think I'm entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. I think I have uh, a certain vision for way industry could be. And that makes me an entrepreneur by, by I think, just how I see things. Same solutions version of entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, to me, an entrepreneur is somebody who sees a marketplace that doesn't currently have their vision for that marketplace and is able to build and execute on that. Got it. Uh, you know, give or take some thoughts on that. Um, so I do consider myself in that world, but I would be lying if I didn't say that as I get older, my, my, my interest in risk and long-term being in that it, it being in that mine and digging that mine and being yeah you know it it definitely i look at other entrepreneurs and i'm like wow i wish i understood them better because i i don't know maybe it's just i'm maybe i'm lazy like i just don't get the ones who just jump from jump 100 million dollars and the 300 million dollar public offer and then it's very attractive to me but when i look at it i'm like wow that looks really exhausting <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair points, man. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your podcast uh, before I let you go. I know you, you got to dip at some point uh, for a lunch, but I know you, we've got a little bit of time left and sure. I want to spend some time on your podcast. So your podcast was legitimately the first one that I like ever fell in love with. And I have a handful <laughs> now, like I'm not like, you're not the only podcast in my queue anymore, but you're still I'm fine. I'm you're, fine you're, that you're promiscuous. <laughs> yeah. I'm, 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 I'm starting to see other people. Uh, but I always really enjoyed your podcast um, for a variety of reasons that uh, that I covered at the very beginning. But um, I want to talk to you about a handful of things. I mean, you've been running this since what? Since two thousand and nine, two thousand thirteen. What? When, oh when? no, 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 no. Two thousand and six. Two thousand six. Holy crap! Okay, yeah. so okay, so two questions I need to know. So the the first one is, why do you podcast? Like, what sure. is it about it that? you're drawn to what are you hoping to accomplish from sure. it? How do you do it? Yeah, no, real simple answer. I don't know if it's a short answer, but a simple answer. I had done college radio. I really loved, and you know, being a music journalist, I loved interviewing artists. When podcasting came to be, I, I love reading books, business books, nonfiction books. I love being very public about the fact that I don't know don't know a lot. I'm probably the dumbest guy out there, but I'm okay asking and saying why or, or digging in deep. And I'm fascinated by people and the human condition. So when I started podcasting, I'm reading all these books, people like Tom Peters and Seth Godin, and uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of who else was out there at the time, Charlene Lee and Ben Drucker and whoever. And I'm like, then Googling them. And I'm seeing articles and occasional sort of disparate stuff. But I'm like, man, at the time, he turned out to be a terrible creep. But like, I love Charlie Rose. Uh, I loved Howard Stern. Uh, I loved just that long form interview type thing. And I'm like, I can't, I don't see these conversations anywhere. So my whole thing was, there's this new thing called podcasting. It's brand new at the time. Um, I believe there must be people like me who want long form conversations with people you don't typically see in these other media channels. I don't see it. Let me do it. Let me go for it and let me try and do it. And then what happened is I published them and it became something. But to this day, 700 episodes later, every Sunday, never missing a weekend, I realized it's one of the most selfish acts that I perform. It's me who has a platform now calling people who I have no right to speak to (laughs) 
who will spend, you know, 30, 40 minutes, an hour with me. And I can ask them anything I want. And I just, I mean, you can go to all the YPO meetings in the world and go to every mastermind you want and dig around for a million questions. But like the fact, if I'm like curious about negotiations that I could call a Chris Voss, you know, if I'm interested in marketing that I could call a Seth Godin, or if I'm interested in career or sort of like definitions, I can call a Sally Hogshead or Charlene Lee or Denise Leon or Laura Gassner Odding. I mean, you know, talk about a mastermind of masterminds. And then, you know, oh, the trick is I publish it and share it with the world. You're welcome to it. And do whatever you want with that content. I got, I get way more out of my show than any listener gets out of my show. There's no doubt. So that's why I do it is the fact that the platform allows me to. Yeah. Long form without going. Now we're back from the break with Jeff from Shareable. Like I, I don't have to do what I had to do for so long. I can go. And if people like it, they like it. And if they don't, I don't care. I had my conversation. Holy shit. That's like my exact same reason. I just had a, I had a phone call yesterday with somebody who wants me to um, potentially do a live broadcast from South by Southwest of my podcast. And I was like, mm, sure. And he was like, well, how do you monetize? I was like, I don't care. I was, he was like, why do you podcast? I was like, I get to talk to incredible people. Yeah. Like kind of to your, your point, like yeah. people you have no business talking to. Like I've had, you know, a number of people on my show where I'm like, how did I remember? So you actually talked to my first employee, John Steyer on the original podcast for my, um, uh, my agency. It was called Social Echoes. Okay. And John just, he got you on the show. He got Jay Bayer. He got all these people. And I was like, how did you pull this off? He was like, I just asked them if they'd want to come on. And I was like, oh, you well, can look, do that? Look, now that we're down the pale, you know, over a decade of doing the show, these people have become close friends. They've become yeah. people that, you know, we talk about the negative sides of social media. I, I have a nonfiction author's private Facebook group with 400 people in there that if you look at the bestsellers list, they're in that group. And I'm, it's my group. I'm like, I'm, I'm the person they're looking at. It's crazy. It's crazy to me. So yeah, I've, you know, look, there are days where I wake up and go, wow, Joe Rogan came in very fast and Mark Marin came in very fast and they are just monetized and making millions of dollars. And I'm sort of doing the same show and not doing that. Never took advertising, never took sponsorship. Um, you know, so, so someone so will call me and say, well, how, how many downloads do you get? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm a do as I say, not as I do. Like, I don't, I've literally never looked at my analytics. I could not tell you how many downloads I get a show. I could not tell you how, I don't know. I have no idea. And I'm not just saying that because I'm embarrassed. I don't know. It's not why I do it. So it's a very different world. But now where I am, I do think about it. I'm like, oh, hold on. This is like a legitimate media thing now. And maybe I should get just a little bit more serious about it. But I might not. I don't know. Wow. That is the most of this entire interview. That's the most shocking part is that you don't even know how many downloads you have. That's it, it's I admirable. Like I, it, it's like, there's a purity to that. You know what I mean? Like you are, you are know. actually doing it for, so I get the most out of the show just from like talking to people. Like I, I let, I say this show is powered by curiosity. Like I just want to bring people on and pick their brains. And the fact that they'll come on and set aside the time, it's amazing. Uh, but I also know what episodes get downloaded the most, where my listeners are, all that sort of stuff, because I can't help myself as, as a marketer for as long as I have. How have you been able to stay <laughs> this consistent over all of this? I mean, because you, have you ever missed a week? No. Holy shit. Yeah. But, every Sunday it's, uh, yeah. Years? And you do it on Sundays. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd have to look, I can look quickly, like how many episodes it is. And you just have to divide that, I guess, by 52. Like right? and something, I think. Yes, 707 as of the, yeah. as of recording. Yeah. yeah. How far ahead are you typically? 
Yeah, it's a great question. There's some moments where I've got months of them in the can and I'm actually really like, ooh, this person's got a book coming out and I'm gonna miss their their their, their book drop. Uh, and then there's some months where it just it sort of like catches up and I'm like, oh God, like you know, maybe Seth Godin will throw me a bone and come on the show again and help me out. And then there, you know, again, because I'm yeah, not it's a really a, tough one to have in your in your bench as your like go to oh god. Well, yeah. no, I, I mean it more like yeah, I mean he's a very, very gracious, amazing human friend, like just I, I, you know, yeah. if there's anything in my life I'm proudest of is the fact that I have people like that in my in my world who will just return a phone call. Yeah. But like, you know, I had my 700th episode and I was like, someone's like, what are you gonna do for your 700th? And I was like, I don't want to do anything. I just want to go. And then I thought it would be interesting because Seth is so into podcasting now to talk about podcasting with Seth, which was like a sort of good, like a 700 show. So stuff like that will happen where it'll drop in the middle. But I would say typically I'm, you know, I've got like four or five or six conversations in the can. My challenge now is that like people are like, hey, like, can you drop this when my book drops? And then I sort of say yes. And then I don't because I'm just bad and I messed up. And then I just see that they're on every show that week. That's the challenge now. It's like, I do think about, like, I always consider myself a bit of a DJ. Like I want, you know, if I had that person this week, I want this topic now. And I sort of look at all the ones I have and I'm trying to like, it's like a mixtape back in the day. But now I just get very much like, oh, I don't want to have that person on if they're on every single show. Like it just bums me out. And I don't follow every single show. I just think it's just, it's not as great. So I'm trying really hard now to, to think differently about the guests I want and the types of conversations I want to have. But it's always been this. It's always been this show. And I just, yeah. Yeah, I've had a, a commitment since I first started podcasting that if somebody has a book, I want to make damn sure that the podcast with me is not like any of their other, like I don't want their book tour shtick. I want, yeah, it's, I want it's, it's my no, I'm with you, but like, you know, everyone's got a show. And because everyone's got a show, you know, I think that we're all snowflakes in the sense of we're all unique and different, not in terms of the political yeah. <laughs> application of that word. But I think that a lot of times it's it's hard to crack beneath the fact that we are talking about a piece of work. So I tend to like coming way after, you know, I tend to like waiting, like, because I think, it, you know, hopefully it gives them a bit of a bump, a little bit of a bump. But I also think that they're probably more inclined to talk about it because also I don't self-promote. Like I do a lot of things as a marketer. I'm like the worst marketer. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'm very similar. I like, I can sit down and advise just about anybody what to do with their stuff, but then comes to well, mind. I don't do it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't have time for that. <laughs> I'll get to it later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. The, the long after is a nice one because also they're probably tired of saying the same thing. So you can go into some new, new territory potentially. Yeah, you can also access people that you might not be able to get on book launch a month yeah. or two after because it's maybe died down a little or they're like, hmm, like uh, yeah, no one's called in a while, right? And it's yeah. like, okay, well, maybe I can sneak in there, right? Hilarious. How do you prep for your shows? I mean, I know you read a lot of but, but actually, before you answer that, how many books do you read like per month in general? I know you're an avid reader. Yeah, I mean, I don't really look at the month. I do sort of in in Evernote, like just sort of for keep like track. year? Yeah, I, I, you know. 60 to 80 books a year, I would say. I got out of my game. My biggest year, I think, was like 24. Yeah, it's which, a lot. I mean, look, all uh, of that is a lot. I, look, I have a lot of... Uh, have you a big reader or did, was there no. a point where it kind of tipped? No, it was very much... I could tell you exactly where it tipped. I had, uh, when I was at this mobile content company, the co-founder was the founder of a very well-known festival called the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival, which is founded some of the biggest comedians in the world out of this festival, which is here in Montreal. 
And he was a guy I love and respect. And the first day of work, I went in there and he handed me the Project 50 from Tom Peters and I, I rolled. And he's like, I can't have you work unless you read this book. And I thought I haven't read a book in forever. I never liked reading. Went home, cracked it open, and I just devoured it. It was like short, simple. It was I, I just had this preconceived idea that business books or any book is long and boring and tedious. And it was just written like Tom Peters writes, and it was just short and snappy and the floodgates opened and then I could, I still to this day haven't stopped. I just, hard just love Was it. All fiction before that. Cause like for me, I, I just didn't read. Tipping point. Yeah. Didn't read. Just didn't read movies and video games and, and articles and magazines and comic books yeah. and everything, but books just never didn't read. And um, that led me down that hole. And then my sort of challenge has always been that I don't want technology to distract me, which is obviously a very popular theme now, but like my phone doesn't ping or beep or anything. And so when I'm using my phone, if it's like one of those, oh, here I am in the moment, like, let me look. It's usually, it is only really my Kindle. I, I, if I'm going to pick up my phone, it's not for Facebook and Instagram. That is a destination for me when I have a moment. But if I'm ever picking it up casually, I got to read. And because the pages on Kindle on a phone are so like, it actually feels like you can move through things quicker. So it's just a way of also managing technology and managing myself to not get sucked into the vortex. It's just a strategy. It's got a coping it. mechanism. Got it. Yeah, I got turned on to, to books basically when I discovered that books weren't all fiction books. And I, and I like fiction books. Yeah, I hear you. All my books you. was assigned reading in college. And like, I didn't yeah. like the idea being told what to do. It was like, nobody Same. tells me what to do. So then I picked up uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And then after Great that, book. and then when I took a speed reading course, that's when everything like changed because I was like, I, wait, you mean I can consume like two or three times as many as like normal people now? Amazing. Um, yeah, see, I never had that. Like, it's interesting to hear people talk about that. And I'm like, totally I'm the opposite. I'm, I'm like into slow. I'm really? into slow. I'm into slow. I'm into reading slow and take my time. And I don't, yeah, I'm, I, people ask me like, Oh, why don't you do this for that? And I'm like, I, I'm always like, I, people laugh, but it's like, I don't like anything fast or heights. Like I just don't like, be like, Hey, why don't you go skydiving? It's like, those are two things I don't like. It's like speed and heights. Like, I don't, I'm happy with like slow and low is where I'm happy. Yeah. yeah so you're like a barbecue kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, so, all right. So back to the original question, which was like, how do you prepare for your sure. show? Is it, so what I've noticed about your show is that it seems to me like you have a handful of things kind of mentally prepared, maybe written down, I don't know. But then there are these times where like something happens and you're like, I got to follow that thread. And you just kind of like dig into it or push back or challenge or whatever. What's your process look like for your show? So you're not at like you're a, like we're talking post. I have a guest, right? We're not not about like how to get a guest, right? You're talking about like yeah, post yeah you've got to get. Okay. I'm talking like you yeah. know somebody's coming on, sure, prepping for. Yeah. So if I showed you, I, I wish I had. Uh, I actually save all of my notes, and I've got this folder that's this big with like almost every show from date, like all the notes. It's it's bizarre. It's like a, it's the only thing I, I don't collect things, but like I collect that. I think it's funny to have. So before I go on. I, I've already done my work before the show. I've read about them. I've done the Googling. I've done that. I usually write their name at the top of a piece of paper with a date. And I write usually the name of the book because I don't want to mess that up. It's not fair to them um, yeah. or books. And that's it. And as soon as we go, I say, who are you and what do you do? And they say something. And then I go, well, I guess we're having a conversation now. And I go. And what happens as we're talking is I actually take notes or come up with questions as they're talking. And so by the end of the conversation, it's usually one or two full pages that looks like interview questions, <laughs> but it only happens as we're chatting. So 
it's not what I would recommend as a strategy, but it did create what I think makes it attractive to you and to the audience, which is that it's not an interview. I'm not trying to get from a question to a question. I am having coffee with them and I'm having a conversation. When you go for coffee or have a conversation with someone over dinner, you do not bring a list of questions and notes and go, hold on, let me just go now, let's talk about this. Oh, now let's do that. When I do those segues, I do them only because they came up in the moment and, and, and I want to call back to something because I wasn't understanding or I wanted to, 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 to dig deeper on it. When I'm provocative, which I've heard from people and that's, that's fair, I, I explain it more like I'm looking for people to show their work. So if you are saying social media is good and I don't think it is, I want to know why. More than the book, I want you to tell me why. Mm-hmm. For people who have done the work, it's a conversation. And for people who have not done the work, it's provocative. And it's, it's, it might even be, seem controversial. But my intent is not to make anybody con- seem controversial or, or, or look dumb at all. Never, never, never. But I want people to show their work. I want them to have a conversation cogently with someone who's having a conversation because I'm knowledgeable about their area of expertise. I think what makes the show interesting also is the fact that I'm not uh, a journalist in the sense of tell me how, you know, who, what, when, where, why, as if I don't know, I do know. I've had success. I've run businesses. I've worked with tons of brands. I know enough to be dangerous about a lot of things. And I read a lot and I want to have a conversation with you about that. And we may disagree on it. Like we have in in this show. And that's how I run a show. Do you ever have uh, instances in a show where like, not like where you run out of things to say, because I, I imagine you've done this long enough. You're a great conversationalist. You could probably prod probe, but there are some guests where it feels like you, you're doing all the heavy lifting, not necessarily for yeah, your, sure. like my experience. I've had that happen. Yeah. Um, you know, you're going in with a blank page. So you're really feeding off the other person. I mean, I'd imagine over 14 years of doing this, you've had instances where you've had to feel like you're carrying it, but how do you deal with it? Well, add on to the experience uh, over 10 years of interviewing rock stars, 20 a week, where there's just, you know, where you're lined up in a hotel, literally in, in outside of the suite, seven of you, and you got 15 minutes each. And I'm just like, if I go in there and ask them, like, why did they choose that producer? How did they name the new album? I'm going to die a quick death because they've answered that 15 times already today. Forget yesterday. Mm-hmm. So... I've spent a lot of time very focused on how to get the best out of people who have something to say for sure. And I think that that's not something you can just do. I think it takes years and years and years of doing that. Um, To answer your question, when that happens most is when there's no level of familiarity. They don't know me. They've agreed to do this through a publicist or someone super famous who is doing a bunch of stuff. I had this happen actually with Mark Marin, who was doing a run of stuff here in Montreal to Just for Last Comedy Festival, and he agreed to do an interview, and I thought this was great. This is years and years ago. And we started recording, and he sort of stopped me in the middle and was like, can we just stop for a second? I'm like, sure. He's like, who are you? He's like, I'm busy doing like local TV stuff here in radio. It's like, what's, we're talking about podcasting and the business. So I explained to him, I'm like, oh, sorry, like this is what I'm about. He's like, let's start this over. And we did, and it was a, I thought it was a much better conversation because it was sort of going down that road of him like giving me these quick little answers. And I was like, that's not what I'm doing here. Um, when it happens authentically, like the person is just really struggling, which happens, I, I try to massage it. 
Um, and the truth is, if it's a really short conversation, it's, it may be a good barometer that it ran out of, it ran its course. I don't want to say it ran out of steam, it just ran its course. So I'm not stuck on how long the show is. I'm stuck on how good the show is, how good the conversation is. Got it. So you've interviewed rock stars, you've interviewed like the who's who of, you know, authors and speakers and things like that. You ever have anybody that makes you nervous or that you're a little anxious about talking to, get a little starstruck, anything like that? I mean, I imagine at this point, you're probably like in your groove, but I mean, maybe it still happens. I don't know. It does. I'm, I'm nervous by nature. For sure, I'm a nervous guy by nature. So almost anybody who has a name or a platform, I can get a little bit like both starstruck and anxious about. Um. And a lot of it has to do more with me not wanting to let them down. Like, ah, oh, that wasn't fun. And then part of that is I hope they like me. Like we're human beings. Yeah. I hope they like me and want to have a chat with me and be my best friend and come and live with us. Right. <laughs> so it happens a lot for sure. And there's no doubt that if it's a topic that I don't feel well versed in, that will for sure make me a bit uncomfortable or make me switch more into an interview type role so that I'm always, I'm always sort of okay because like, let's say we're talking about a technology I know nothing about and I, I've done the work, but it's complex. I, do, I feel like if I'm like that, everyone's like that. So I can, I can assume the journalist role because I have a pedigree with that. That makes me comfortable. But I would say anytime I hit record to this day, I do live radio, I do a lot of stuff. I think that that's, it's, I speak. It's good. It's healthy because it means that I care. I really care. And I don't want to let myself down. I don't want to let them down. I don't want to let the audience down. I don't want to let my family down. I don't want to... And I think that that is a healthy, if you're going to call it negative energy to have. So I'm fine with it. Got it. All right. Final question for you. Um, you've talked about imposter syndrome before. And I'm sure. asking this because you just made me think of it by saying, if I don't know it, then I assume everybody doesn't know it. But kind of the reverse side is something that I tend to struggle with where I've read a lot of different things. I know a lot about, you know, for instance, about social media. I've been working in it for a decade. I've read a lot. I've written a lot. I've, you know, strategized and consulted. And I get to this point where I feel like, well, everybody knows this thing. Yeah. So it's like the opposite side of it. And then there's the um, imposter syndrome of like, well, if everybody knows that, then everything I do is not important and it's like not valuable and like I'm not advanced. I'm just a beginner. And like there's all of this sort of Dunning-Kruger curve nonsense that comes into it. So how do you, as long as you've been doing this, talking with these different people, how do you keep yourself grounded and connected to understanding like what is um, – gonna- I'm going to throw in one of your words here. What, what is the zeitgeist of, uh, I'm not using <laughs> I, that. Love, I'm, I love that yeah, word. Dude. I know you do you use it. Uh, yeah, no, but like, how do you get grounded on like, what is the common understanding thing? Like how, how do you keep yourself understanding what the listener that you have, like actually needs to know versus what you inherently know that they may not know? Like, how are you op- operating on like the presumption of understanding that and keeping yourself grounded that what you have to say is valuable. Yeah. It's not too above their heads. It's not too, like, how do you get, how do you do that? Yeah. So one is clearly you listen, because if you're going to pull out the word zeitgeist, that's someone who's listening to my show a lot because I love that word. So that's cool. About this. Uh, uh, yeah, it's great. Um, okay. So a couple things. One is what you're talking about isn't the reverse of the imposter syndrome. What you're talking about is something called the curse of knowledge, which is that um, I know it and they know it. So everyone knows it. And the truth is they don't. So I have to be very careful because as much as I don't want to say, and now we're back from the break with Jeff from Shareable, 
some people need that. We were just talking about this and he was, you know, they need a bit of that sort of structure. So there's a reason that formula works and there's a reason it's there. I think that you make a decision about your show that is based off of, do you want to be very, very beginner or very, very advanced or somewhere in the middle? I don't want to be very, very beginner and I don't want to be too, too advanced, but I want to be somewhere in that I'm informed, I'm intelligent, I'm thinking about it on a different level beyond here are five ways to think differently about blockchain. Okay. So I am making an assumption, right or wrong, that there is a level of knowledge at the baseline there. If in the form of the conversation, I feel like I'm it may not be there, I'll ask, or I will intervene and say, just to sort of level set, here's sort of what I'm thinking, seeing, would like to discuss. So I, I don't see that world in the same way as I see the imposter syndrome. And the imposter syndrome for me, which is something I for sure deal with, is someone's going to knock on the door and say, we know you didn't go to university and college. We know, you know, just come, you can go home now. We're, you're, we're quite done with you, sir, you know? Um, but I talk about this in the construct of thinking about content. And so if we go back all the years when I started publishing in the early 2000s, it was unique that somebody was talking, whether it's podcasting or blogging or writing articles about the, that intersection of brands, consumers, and technology. When that became more pervasive and everybody came in, people like you and Jay and a million other people and all these smart people, and they're great, I believe my transition is from being unique to having a unique voice in a crowded space. So when I think about that side of the curse of knowledge audience, how do you engage them? What I am thinking about is, do I have a unique voice in this space? And I don't know if I do. I'm just assuming that by longevity and just cramming it down people's throats that they will find it and agree. But the truth is I may be wrong. And I think that's my fault is that because I don't look at the analytics, I don't know. I don't know if I should be doing things to grow my audience and all. I don't know. So all of this works if you're talking about somebody who has to pay their bills because they're in part of some sort of media ecosystem. All bets are off because I could do whatever I want. So it's sort of like I'm just following the muse. Mitch, thanks for coming on the show, man. Uh, I want to give you a, a point in the show where uh, I let my guests just talk about whatever it is that they want, promote what you're doing. Take this time and actually, Mitch, be a marketer right now. <laughs> and please, for the love of God, tell people, <sighs> you know, I'm going to do the first one for you. Please, everybody, if you listen to Shareable, you have to listen to Six Pixels of Separation. Uh, it is one of my favorite podcasts. You should definitely listen to it. This is Mitch Joel. He's the host of it. Mitch, please promote anything else that you want to promote. Uh, I've just given you the, the single most incredible endorsement that you could have on Shareable. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. So You're very kind, Jeff. I really appreciate it. It really was like a, a fun time that, you know, it is rare you have a conversation like, let's keep going. It was great. So thank you. Uh, Six Pixels of Separation is my blog. It's my podcast. It's where my content lives and that's at sixpixels.com. Look, the thing that I'm promoting is if you've got a gig, if you've got an event, you're trying to get people together, you want to help them understand what's next, where things are going, and you want a speaker, I will deliver. And that's, uh, if you go to mitchjoel.com, that's there, but it's all linked. Mitchjoel.com and sixpixels is, is intrinsically linked. So those are my two domains and you can find me on any social channel at Mitch Joel. 
And hopefully some of this stuff here resonated and wasn't too much inside baseball. And it was just a real pleasure, Jeff. So thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, man. I had a blast of a time. I've been waiting to get you on the show for a very long time, but I had to wait until we got over 100. I had to be ready for this. Oh, I was going to say, you can ask me anytime. I'm very happy to help. So. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on. This was a lot of fun. Um, this absolutely, out of all of the episodes that I've done, I would have to say is shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro, do it just once for me, please. Okay, if you enjoy shareable, and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing, shareable.fm, where this podcast is hosted. Do you have a podcast or know someone that has a podcast that you think is particularly, I don't know, shareable? Well, send them to shareable.fm to apply to be on the network. Shows that are selected not only get added to the site and in some cases to the Shareable FM radio podcasts, but we also bring together the best tips, tricks, and tactics for promoting your show and growing listenership. And for our headliner and feature shows, we provide fully outsourced social advertising support. So leave the uh, promotion to us, okay? So give it a look, and if you want to find some new and interesting shows, or if you just want additional exposure for your own show, or know someone who would benefit, please let them know about it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Shareable. I sincerely appreciate it, and this show would mean absolutely nothing without you, the listener. So thank you, and I hope to see you back for the next one. Goodbye for now. <laughs>